1: all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
2: Was anyone at the Justice Department watching that hearing last night? Anyone? Bueller? The lead starts right now. A criminal case proven against Donald Trump, according to members of the January 6th committee. They say they exposed the former president's determination to hold on to power and his unwillingness to call off violent rioters at the Capitol whose terrorism scared even secret service agents. Will Attorney General Merrick Garland take any action against the men behind the treason? Plus, Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin shockingly attacked at a campaign rally by a man who tried to stab him. And the very brief stint in custody for the man arrested has Zeldin and others sounding off. Proceeding with caution, could the optimism in one American city inspire us all to think big and more positively about our inflated economy right now? Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We're gonna start today with our politics lead and a clear sign from the January 6th House Committee that they believe it is time for Attorney General Merrick Garland to charge Donald Trump with a crime. This morning, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, one of the Republicans on the committee, told CNN that the timeline laid out by the committee is not just damning of the president, but leaves Trump with clear criminal culpability. We've proven different components
3: of a criminal case against Donald Trump or people around him in every hearing. And I think taken in totality, This represents the greatest effort to overturn the will of the people, to conspire against the will of the people, and to conspire against American democracy uh, that we've ever had, frankly, since the Civil War. So, uh,
2: yeah, I think we've proven that. Uh, It's up to justice now to make a decision. This declaration after the bombshell January 6th committee hearing last night where committee members pointed out that former President Trump did not fail to act during the riot, he chose to not act.
4: From the time when President Trump ended his speech until the moment when he finally told the mob to go home, a span of 187 minutes, more than three hours, President Trump sat in his dining room and watched the attack on television, while his senior most staff, closest advisors, and family members begged him to do what is expected of any American president.
2: The committee played testimony from senior Trump White House officials that showed as the riots escalated on Capitol Hill, President Trump refused to take any action to stop them. Here are the White House counsel at the time and the vice president's then national security advisor.
5: Are you aware of any phone call by the president of the United States to the secretary of defense that day? Not that I'm aware of no. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Attorney General of the United States that day? No. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Secretary of Homeland Security that day?
6: I, I'm not aware of that. No. Did you ever hear the vice president, or excuse me, the president, no. ask for the National no. Guard? Did you ever hear the president ask for law enforcement response?
2: No. 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 Committee members saying Trump's lack of action was a clear dereliction of duty. He failed to act. He failed to restore order in the Capitol. He failed to call off the MAGA mob that he had beckoned to the Capitol, leaving lawmakers, police officers, Secret Service members scared, and in some cases running for their very lives. And they weren't the only ones. Even MAGA members were running. Despite his defiant pose earlier that day, Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri whose objection to counting the electoral votes based on all those election lies opened the door for the whole insurrection. Hawley was shown as the mob entered the Capitol scurrying like a cockroach after someone turned on the kitchen lights. And for three hours and seven minutes, Donald Trump let the mob wreak its havoc with lives and American democracy in danger. And one of those people who were putting our democracy in danger along with Donald Trump was Steve Bannon. This afternoon, a jury found Bannon guilty on two counts of contempt of Congress for failing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. Let's start with that breaking news and bring in Sarah Murray, who's live outside the courthouse. And Sarah, we just heard from Steve Bannon and his attorney, Mr. Schoen. What did they have to say?
7: That's right. Steve Bannon said, you know, they may have lost this battle, but they are not going to lose the war. And it is clear, as you pointed out, that they did lose the battle. Uh, he was found guilty today on two counts for refusing to appear for his testimony and refusing to provide any documents to the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Now, his attorney, David Schoen, says he th- thinks this is going to be a bulletproof appeal. We'll see about that. But it was very clear throughout the trial that what Bannon's attorneys were playing for was this appeal. You know, they did not put on a defense. They didn't Put any witnesses for it on Bannon's behalf. Bannon did not take the stand, despite all of his bluster, claiming this was going to be some kind of misdemeanor from hell. And the prosecution made a very simple case. They said Steve Bannon failed to show up. He needed to show up. He believes he's above the rules. And he put his allegiance to Donald Trump ahead of the law, Jake.
2: How did Steve Bannon react when the, the verdict was read?
7: He was sort of smirking and smiling in the courtroom as the verdict was handed down. You know, I think that what we have seen from Bannon and he is is he has been at times defiant about this prosecution and at times almost nonchalant about it. I think that what you saw is the reaction from someone who knows that he intends to appeal this, appeal uh, this, even though he faces 30 days behind bars. The sentencing is not going to come uh, until October. You know, 30 days is the minimum he could get, and if planning on appealing it, it's possible that he won't have any jail time while that whole appeal is playing out, Jake.
2: Sarah Murray, thanks so much for bringing us that breaking news. Reactions are pouring in about last night's January 6 committee hearing. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill with those takeaways.
8: President Trump was sitting in the White House for more than three hours, watching
5: TV as the deadly attack on the Capitol unfolded. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Secretary of Defense that day?
3: Not that I'm aware of, no.
5: Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Attorney General of the United States that day? No. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Secretary of Homeland Security that day?
3: I'm not aware of that, no.
5: Trump rejecting pleas from members of Congress.
8: His aides, and his family members to tell the mob of his supporters to go home. If Pence came, we're going to drag motherfuckers through the streets. Instead, inflaming tensions, including with a tweet attacking Vice President Mike Pence. The
3: tweet looked to me like the opposite of what what we really needed at that moment, which was a
9: de-escalation.
10: It was essentially him giving the green light to these uh, people.
8: Trump was on the phone with his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who in turn was pushing senators to slow down the certification of Joe Biden's victory in a last-ditch attempt to stay in power. As Trump went to the residence that night, he did not express concerns about the attack. Instead,
3: he said only, quote, Mike Pence let me down.
8: But the committee revealing that Trump's actions endangered Pence's life. Radio communications from the VP's Secret Service detail showing the chaos with rioters just feet away.
11: Oh, they can't keep the building. Hold. Pardon that door up.
8: If we're moving, we need to move now. Happy. If we lose
12: uh, any more time, we may, have, we may lose the ability to, to leave. So if we're going to leave, we need to do it now.
5: They've gained access to the second
11: floor, and I've got public about five feet from me down here below.
8: And no, this testimony from a White House security that's official that's whose that's identity that. was kept anonymous for his own safety.
13: The members of the BPT tell at this time were starting to fear for their own lives.
8: There were calls
13: to uh, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth.
7: Even
8: the day after the attack, outtakes of don't Trump's speech show he refused to say the election was over. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results.
12: I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say... Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay?
8: the committee plans witness interviews behind closed doors in August and then more public hearings in September, some members believe they have laid out a criminal case against the former president. I think the, the president certainly has criminal exposure. One of the things that the committee plans to be doing during August is to figure out the mystery behind these apparently missing Secret Service texts from January 5th and January 6th of 2001 that apparently were lost because of some phone migration issue. As one member of the committee, Jamie Raskin, told me last night, he said a lot of details have come in, leads have come in, we're trying to fill in those details. He said, quote, we're going to figure out the whole mystery of the Secret Service texts. Jake,
2: I hope they do. Manu Raju, thanks so much. With me to discuss our former January 6th Select Committee investigator John Wood and former Trump White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham. Uh, John, let me first get your reaction to the jury here in D.C. finding Steve Bannon guilty today on two counts of contempt of Congress for not uh, abiding by subpoenas uh, for his participation What does this mean for the January 6th committee going forward, and what do you think it means for Banna? Well, I think it sends a message to other witnesses
14: that they better cooperate. You know, the jury was given a choice between guilty or not guilty, but if they had the option of really, really guilty, they probably could have picked that. Um, And I'm going to be like Joe Namath here. I'm going to give you a guarantee. I guarantee you that this verdict will not be overturned on appeal. The district court judge, Carl Nichols, was a Trump appointee, a former Supreme Court clerk, a brilliant lawyer. I'm sure he handled everything exactly right to make sure it won't be overturned on appeal. So it looks to me like Steve Bannon's going to go to prison.
2: Stephanie, uh, about last night's hearing, we heard testimony um, that numerous White House aides were pleading with President Trump during the riot, asking him to do something to tell the rioters to go home. And he kept on refusing and refusing. You were still part of the administration. Then does that accurately describe what you heard from your colleagues at the time? Because I know I don't think you were in Washington at the time.
11: No, I actually was in Washington, but I was working. Yeah, I was working remotely. Um, Yes, that that sounds right. Just from what I was hearing from people. But also, that was something that would happen often with COVID people would be pleading with him, please wear a mask, be an example for the country. So there was always a group of people trying to get him to do the right thing. And, you know, watching those outtakes from the video just brought back so many memories because, again, we would give him a script, the speechwriters would write something, and then he would rewrite it and do his own thing.
2: John, um, you were with the committee from the beginning. You left last month to run uh, for the Senate from in Missouri, I believe as an independent. Correct. Correct. Um, so Congressman Adam Kinzinger Uh, Your fellow, you're actually a Republican, but I am a Republican. Your fellow Republican Adam Kinzinger said that the committee has laid out a clear criminal case against Donald Trump. Um, Based on your conversations with the committee, do you think it's likely that they're going to refer charges to the Justice Department? Uh, and what do you think the Justice Department is going to do either
14: way? So I can't tell you anything about any internal deliberations within the committee, but I will tell you this. The Attorney General, whether he brings charges or decides not to bring charges, will be described as having acted politically. So I think the only option he has, and he should take it right now, is to appoint a special counsel, somebody who can be as free of politics as possible, because all the evidence that you've seen in these hearings suggests that President Trump and those in his immediate orbit— need to be investigated. Okay, so you're you're not convinced that there's a criminal case yet that can be won? I think the investigation is still ongoing, and there's only so much that a congressional committee can do. Ultimately, the Justice Department needs to investigate the people in the immediate orbit of President Trump, and in order to take the politics out of it, I think there should be a special counsel to do it.
2: Stephanie, uh, as the um, chief of staff for Melania Trump on January 6th, you wrote her uh, a text message asking her if she wanted to condemn the violence uh, and tell people that they can peacefully uh, protest, but, but nothing worse than that. Um, she wrote back, no, we've all seen that. You've put it up on, on Twitter. Uh, and we've discussed it. Last night we discussed whether or not she had, you know, there was any way she didn't know uh, that this riot was going on. There's the, there's the text message. Um, she released a statement today insisting that she was unaware that there was violence going on on January 6th because, quote, it was my obligation to record the contents of the white house's historic rooms she said this is a very significant undertaking requires great care attention to detail and concentration and later in the statement she mentions you and said had i been fully informed of all the details naturally i would have immediately denounced the violence she also suggested that you you were guilty of dereliction of duty classic trump uh (laughs) i'm rubber you're glue um what's your response
11: You know, um, I was flattered she used the fancy station on me today, so that was good. But, you know, I really wish Melania Trump would be using her stationery and her very big platform to help children rather than harass me. The facts are the White House curator is who logs the items in the White House. I would say that Uh, to say that she didn't know about January 6th, I would say is a dereliction of duty as FLOTUS and as um, a wife, to be honest with you. And then finally, as I said at the top of the show, I was in D.C. I hadn't abandoned my post. And in fact, I had tried to resign twice as her chief of staff and she wouldn't let me. So as I've said, everything she said, I have proof that, you know, she's just deflecting. It's the Trump way. I've been dealing with it for over a year. And I would just encourage her to get to work helping children, which is what she says she wants to do.
2: Well, we know she watches CNN, so be prepared for a response, I'm sure. John, uh, you're running for Senate as an independent in Missouri, so I, of course, have to ask you about this photo of your fellow uh, Missourian, uh, uh, Senator Josh Hawley. There he is uh, the day of the insurrection, raising his fist defiantly in solidarity with the MAGA mob. Um, And then last night, of course, uh, the committee ran uh, this video of him uh, scurrying Uh, like a kitty cat being chased by a dog. Um, What do you you make uh, of these drastically different positions from a man who has written a book on uh, what masculinity is?
14: Well, I look forward to serving with Senator Hawley in the United States Senate to serve the interests of all Missourians. As you can probably guess, Senator Hawley and I have very different views about what happened in the 2020 election and what happened on January 6th. I think it was an absolute tragedy, and we need to make sure it never happens again. And even more importantly, we need to get to a point as a country Where we have a consensus, again, in support of our Constitution and our democracy. And part of living in a democracy is you have to accept the results of an election, even if your party doesn't win.
2: Well, it's not really a view about the 2020 election that you disagree with, right? (laughs) Because it's not really a view about whether that was a legitimate election. It was a legitimate election. You know that. And either Senator Hawley believes a lie or he's lying. Is that not a correct assessment?
14: Well, Senator Hawley, I think, was absolutely wrong to challenge the uh, electors from Pennsylvania. Uh, There was thorough investigation after the 2020 election. There were 61 lawsuits. Uh, The president had his opportunity to challenge the results of the election, and he failed. So we have to respect the outcome of an election, and there should be no dispute about that in a democracy.
2: Stephanie, there are reports that Trump is eyeing an early announcement that he's running for president in 2024. Do you think he's considering making the announcement sooner rather than later so that he might get in Merrick Garland's head, you can't charge me with a crime, I'm running for president?
11: Well, if I know him, yes, he wants to announce uh, more because he wants the attention. But I agree also uh, to, to send a message to Merrick Garland, I am hoping, you know, I think that the committee has done a masterful job of laying out what the president didn't do and what he also chose not to do. Um, And I'm hoping that that will have an impact on the people who are spreading the big lie in the midterms. And if he does run, I hope that that will get independents and left-leaning Republicans to go into the booth and understandably vote with their conscience.
2: All right, Stephanie Grisham, John Wood, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Coming up next on the lead, the attack at a campaign rally. Shocking. Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin running for governor in New York. He was rushed on stage by a man armed with a sharp sharp plastic object wrapped around his knuckles trying to stab Congressman Zeldin. Thankfully, he did not succeed the arrest and fallout that has Zeldin outraged. Plus, a much-needed agreement between Ukraine and Russia today, even as Putin's war drags on. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead, Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, who is running to be the next governor of New York, returned to the campaign trail today after being attacked during a speech. Zeldin's campaign says the man you see climbing onto stage here attempted to stab Zeldin with what local officials call a sharp plastic object. A source familiar with the incident confirms the New York Post reporting that this is what the suspect was holding, a plastic self-defense keychain. The congressman, who is an Army veteran, was able to grab the attacker's wrist and stop him from stabbing him. 43-year-old David Jacobonis has been charged in the attack. He's already been released, however, because of New York's controversial no-cash bail law. CNN's Erica Hills live in New York. Erica, thankfully, the congressman is okay. Um, but we should note this New York law allowing a suspect to be released has become a major focus of the Zeldin campaign today, and understandably so.
1: Yeah, it has. It's been a major focus today. He was back on the campaign trail at an event this morning. And frankly, it's been a focus for some time for the congressman. So this goes back to a law that was passed in 2019 that did away uh, with this cash bail for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. So the charge that we're talking about for this man who allegedly attacked the congressman on stage last night is a class classy felony. That's the least serious. Uh, he's charged with attempted attack in the second degree. When this law was passed, again, uh, it was done so that people weren't sitting in jail if they couldn't pay for that cash bill. But it's been controversial. There's been a lot of pushback since it was passed and then went into effect. And there have been some changes, Jake, since it went into effect in 2020. But you can expect you're going to hear a lot more about this moving forward.
2: Erica, we, we just heard from one of the men who helped detain the suspect on stage. What did he have to say?
1: Uh, that's right. His name is Joe Chanelli. He's also uh, running in New York state. So he described what happened. He saw the man approach the stage. He said something seemed a little bit off. He wasn't sure if this sub was somebody who maybe wanted to say something, was was unhappy with Congressman Zeldin, or perhaps even wanted to give him a hug. This is how he described how those moments went down on the stage. Take a listen.
15: Then he pulled this uh, this weapon out of his pocket or... Um, off his right side of his body and swung at the congressman uh, towards his face or throat and said, you're done. And at that time, uh, the congressman blocked his his first strike. Uh, As he pulled back and tried to strike again the second time, I was able to wrap him up in a bear hug and get him down to the ground.
1: So there you go. Got him down to the ground. He was held for about six hours before he was released on his own recognizance. He does have some travel restrictions. Uh, The suspect does, Jake, uh, as well as a temporary order of protection. He needs to stay away from Congressman Zeldin.
2: Little known fact, uh, Zeldin has a black belt in Taekwondo. Erica Hill, thank you so much. Appreciate your report. My next guest, the openly gay Democratic senator who confronted her Republican colleague, Senator Marco Rubio, who had just called... The debate over a gay marriage bill, a stupid waste of time. Stay with us. Turning to post-Roe America and our politics lead and the push to codify into law possibly vulnerable rights that the Supreme Court had previously affirmed, such as the right of same-sex couples to get married. Shortly after the House passed a bill that would have afforded such protections to LGBTQ couples earlier this week, reporters caught up with Republican Florida Senator Marco Rubio as he was getting on an elevator to find out how he was going to vote. Rubio, who was up for re-election this year, told journalists that the bill was nothing more than a, quote, stupid waste of time. Those remarks as he was getting on an elevator with the first openly gay senator ever elected to Congress, Wisconsin Democrat Tammy Baldwin and Senator Baldwin joins us now. So, Senator, well, what did you say when he got on the elevator?
16: Well, of course, uh, I, I had to make an elevator pitch, right? I only had a short time, but I, I, uh, I he was kind of shocked, I think, to see me standing there after uh, uh, talking with uh, your reporter. And um, I really did talk about uh, why it's needed at this point in time and why uh, it's not a waste of time to uh, the many uh, gay and interracial couples that live in Florida, uh, and uh, what is uh, uh, you know he's obviously not convinced. Um, but I said we'll we'll be talking. Uh, but as as you know, I am uh, working very hard to uh, identify a, a 60 vote majority in order to pass this legislation um, to safeguard these uh, uh, these rights, uh, and um, I'm going to continue doing that job.
2: So it sounds as though, even though he had just said a vote on whether or not you can legally get married to whoever you want, uh, even though he said that in your presence was a stupid waste of time, it sounds like your approach to him was not one of anger but one of, of reason. Is is that? Am I reading you correctly?
16: Yes. So uh, once the Supreme Court decided in the Dobbs case that. Um, the constitutional right to privacy no longer exists. And when uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, went a bit further in saying this court should revisit all the cases decided under similar, um, uh, similar constitutional uh, arguments, um, it put in jeopardy uh, our right to access contraception, it put in jeopardy uh, same-sex marriage, frankly interracial marriage, and other, uh, other rights that have been decided again under the same constitutional construct. And so it's very important that we um, pass legislation to safeguard uh, the, the right uh, of marriage equality and uh, access to contraception, et cetera. And the House is doing just that. Um, I want the Senate to uh, join uh, the House in their bold bipartisan action last Tuesday. I want the Senate to do that as soon as possible.
2: So, as you know, we have Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives on the lead. And and I just just to tell you what a conservative or a Republican might say in response to what you just said, uh, they would say, first of all, yes, Clarence Thomas wrote that. But uh, Samuel Alito, who wrote the Dobbs opinion, said that basically I'm not Clarence Thomas is wrong. We're not going to revisit all those other cases. They would. So that's one. Uh, that, you know, this issue, Dobbs, is different because it's uh, issues of life as opposed to the other things, contraception, sodomy and, and, uh, and same-sex marriage. And then second, um, you brought up interracial marriage, Loving, and, uh, Loving versus Virginia, which Clarence Thomas, who was married to a white woman, uh, did not bring up. So how would you respond to that? Their, their basic argument is Democrats are just doing this to scare people, to try to get uh, their voters to the polls. This is not a real threat.
16: Well, this isn't a partisan issue at all. And in fact, that's why I feel very um, hopeful that we will uh, have more than 60 votes in order to codify the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, but I can tell you that uh, a, a case as um, uh, significant as uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade in, Do- in uh, Dobbs, that overturns 49 years of precedent. Women in America have less freedom today than their mothers and grandmothers had. And there has been much written already about the uh, vulnerability of other rights um, that were decided in the same manner as the court approached Dobbs. And so there is uh, a lot of uh, fear. There's a lot of, uh, there's certainly full understanding that. Um, were it not for the Obergefell decision, which created marriage equality in the U.S., um, that there are many states that wouldn't have that right. And so this um, uh, is simply a bill to say that the full faith and credit uh, of the United States will be placed in the legal enactments of other states and um, it will require um, recognition. And it's a very important step forward. Uh, and, and we can't forget, uh, it wasn't so long ago that we were still working um, to try to legislate marriage equality. Right. And uh, marriage is something that confers hundreds of rights and responsibilities. Yeah. Um, things like being able to visit your uh, spouse in the hospital if they're ill versus being viewed as a legal stranger. And so these are real life things that we need to fight for.
2: And I know your fellow Wisconsin Senator, Republican Ron Johnson, just announced last night that if the bill comes up, he will vote uh, in support of it. But my understanding is right now you need 10 Republicans and you only have five. Is that right?
16: I think there's a number of folks who uh, are choosing to make their announcement on their own time. I've had some encouraging conversations uh, Uh, where we started the conversation. They're going to read the bill. We'll talk uh, either later this weekend or early next week. But I think we're getting really close.
2: All right, Democrat from Wisconsin, Senator Tammy Baldwin, thank you so much. We should note, uh, we reached out to Senator Rubio to come on as well. He has an invitation to join us anytime to discuss this or anything he wants. Now to our health lead, the White House just now briefing reporters on President Biden's health. The president, of course, testing positive for coronavirus yesterday. Mr. Biden is fully vaccinated. He has had two booster shots. We're told he is experiencing mild symptoms. Let's bring in Jeff Zeleny. He's at the White House. Jeff, what do we know about how President Biden is feeling today? Well, Jake, the White House is clearly trying to make
15: a point that President Biden is at work. He's just doing so remotely. Just a short time ago, he actually had a virtual uh, meeting with several of his advisors, uh, trying to highlight uh, gas prices and how they've been falling every day for uh, about a month and a half or so. He said he, he feels better than he sounds. His voice was a little bit low and it, uh, you know, he sounded like he was experiencing mild symptoms, as we've said, but there is a briefing going on right now. And Dr. Ajish uh, Shah, the, the COVID coordinator, just said a few moments ago, the president is in good spirits, he's feeling well. And he had this to say about how the president was doing earlier this morning and how he's eating. Um, and as you
6: all saw just a few minutes ago, the president is doing better. He slept well last night, uh, he ate his breakfast and lunch, I fully He actually showed me his plate
8: didn't ask about the menu but I did see an empty
6: plate with crumbs and I have some guesses about what was there but didn't ask uh, didn't so the White House is clearly viewing this with a bit of
15: humor as they are uh, really essentially explaining how the leader of the free world is isolating for the next five days in the residence of the White House which is on the second floor behind me here In this building so the president is uh really only encountering uh face to face a limited number of advisors he had his uh his daily presidential brief of course that is the uh, threat assessment that was held virtually He had a virtual meeting with his national security team. Of course, the White House releasing photos of most of these, trying to make the the point that he is working. He, of course, is being treated for a Paxlovid as well. That's the antiviral. His temperature rose a bit overnight to 99.4. The White House pointing out that that is slightly less than the level of a fever, but he's given uh, Tylenol uh, just as a precaution. He's off his other medicines, uh, blood thinners and cholesterol medicines. But uh, we also learned today, Jake, 17 people have been identified by the White House Medical Unit as close contacts of the president, and all of them are following the guidance as well. Jill Biden, for her part, the first lady, is isolating separately. She's tested
2: negative, but she's at their home in Wilmington. Yeah, Jake. and the vice president, Kamala Harris, also testing negative today. Thank you so much. Indeed. Jeff Zelani, appreciate it. Coming up next, the deal struck today between Ukraine and Russia after months of war, and this one could help the world's entire food supply. Stay with us. Topping our world lead today, finally a deal between Russia and Ukraine that could benefit millions. Unfortunately, it's not a ceasefire on the raging land war, but it is something, an agreement to unblock ports in the Black Sea, ports that are critical for distributing grain around the world and easing the global food crisis. Both Russian and Ukrainian officials agreed to not attack ships carrying grain out of those critical ports. But as CNN's Nick Robertson reports for us now, Ukraine and Russia remain a long way from any true peace.
17: In Istanbul, the biggest diplomatic breakthrough in Russia's war against Ukraine. A deal to ease Russia's stranglehold on Ukraine and get its grain, one-fifth of the world's supply, to market.
8: It will bring relief for developing countries on the edge of bankruptcy and the most vulnerable people on the edge of famine.
17: Since the war began, Russia has attacked and blockaded Ukraine's ports, burnt wheat fields, stolen harvests from farmers. Until now, Russia has been holding the world's grain hostage. The New Deal aims to end that by creating safe shipping channels, using Ukrainian pilots to navigate through sea mines. Implementation overseen by Turkey includes inspecting cargoes. Russia's defence chief and Ukraine's infrastructure minister sign the deal, but not with each other, separately with the UN. Tensions remain and the deal fragile, with no hard ceasefire at ports. An advisor to President Zelensky's chief of staff tweeting, in case of provocations, an immediate military response. Ukraine does not trust Russia. I don't think anyone has uh, reasons to trust Russia. We invest uh, our trust in the United Nations as the uh, driving force of this agreement. Speaking in Istanbul, Russia's defense chief indicating what they got from the deal. The UN lifting restrictions on their food and fertilizer exports despite their responsibility triggering the current calamity. Ukrainian officials say 20 million tonnes of grain are stuck in port and exports could begin in days, likely using ships stuck in port since the war began. So agricultural experts here are saying the real success, if this deal can work, if there's no return to hostilities, at least at sea, will be that these ships that have been stuck in harbour with grain can get out. And that will prove that the route's safe. And therefore, shipping companies around the world will then be able to or be willing to insure other vessels to go back in and get the rest of the grain. But but I've got to say, Jake, it is really fragile, but it's something. It's certainly more than there was.
2: Nick Robertson in Ukraine. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a major American city trying to hold on to hope that economic progress is possible. Stay with us. In today's Money Lead, a look at real people coping with life amid high inflation, economic uncertainty, and toxic politics. Our latest polling shows a whopping 79% of the American people feel Things in this country are going badly right now. But in Lansing, Michigan, CNN's Miguel Marquez found glimmers of something that the polls don't measure. Sloppy Joe night at the Dykstra home.
6: Nate and Treya Dykstra emerging from the pandemic stronger than ever. They have a new baby, bought their first house three years ago. Nate took a new job with a 50% pay increase and promise he'd never have to go to an office again. My old employer was going to eventually force everyone back into the office. This new role is permanent remote, so I can work from home forever. Still, it was tough. How difficult was it to get through the, the pandemic?
18: took a huge toll on my mental health.
6: For them, it's still the pandemic, not economic concerns that color their outlook and guide their decisions. Today, saving cash, a priority.
19: We stopped traveling for the pandemic. We started investing more in, like,
5: the house and trying to build equity.
6: Lansing, where they live is booming. Michigan's state capital, GM, makes five vehicles here and has announced it will invest $2.6 billion on a new battery plant for electric vehicles. What an exciting day. Local companies expanding too. Neogen, (laughs) specializing in food safety, announced a $70 million expansion, bringing more high-income jobs here. Even downtown Lansing, near the capital, starting to hum.
0: We are seeing a demand for housing like you wouldn't believe in our downtown.
6: Like the rest of the country?
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We opened uh, about 200 units right over there. We opened uh, about 150 units over there. We opened a new um, grocery store with units above it.
6: Sean Elliott is a Lansing builder, contractor, and commercial real estate owner. Today, he's helping build a new downtown restaurant.
9: This is actually going to be a vegan restaurant that we're bringing to the mid-Michigan area. It's going to be called Veghead.
6: During the pandemic, he went down to three employees. Today, he has nine and would like to add at least two more. Raya Van Atta owns a business dedicated to all things Michigan in Lansing's old town. She too is hiring, but...
5: I'm nervously confident and enthusiastic about what's going. On. I mean, what do you you're do? Ner- you have you're to. You're nervously
6: stay. confident. You're nervous about what?
5: I'm nervous of what might be. Like, what if I have purchased all these things for the holidays and then there's a big recession
20: and no one wants to buy it? It's basically
6: the best as It's a very weird economy. Michigan economist Scott Imberman says, coming out of the pandemic, businesses and consumers are being hit in ways we've never seen. I'm not sure we've really experienced anything quite like this, where you have uh, an inflationary environment with a really strong labor market. For families like the Dijkstra's, the worries less about the economy and more about the general direction of the nation. Everything seems to
9: be a controversy these days, and I'm just scared that it's going to be like a civil war coming in eventually because both sides politically are... are
0: pretty angry
6: at the other half of the country. Despite the boom times, worries about where the nation is headed, keeping expectations low when some families staying close to home. So nervously confident seems to be what a lot of us are feeling these these days. But whatever the case, with with all the stuff that people are dealing with, there's one thing that was crystal clear. Work from home. Both the mayor and the business owners we spoke to said it has to be pared back or ended altogether if they want their communities to thrive. That is something, whether you're in Lansing or midtown Manhattan, cities across this country are going to have to deal with in the months and years ahead. Jake.
2: All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Fascinating report. First here on CNN. The Secret Service under scrutiny. What sources are telling us about the investigation into phones and text messages of 10 specific U.S. Secret Service staffers? That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a a battle for the soul of the Republican Party, in a way, with Donald Trump and Mike Pence facing off in Arizona's hotly contested Republican primary. What we heard just this afternoon from Pence as Trump ties himself to the candidate pushing deranged far-right conspiracies. Plus, beaten by police, now he's leading the very department. CNN is one-on-one with Boston's new top cop and his unique past with his police force. And leading this hour, first on CNN, Secret Service investigators zero in on the phones of 10 Secret Service personnel and messages sent and received around January 6th this as the January 6th committee reviews evidence to see whether any Secret Service personnel played any role in helping Donald Trump try to block certification of the 2020 election. CNN's Whitney Wild joins me now live. And Whitney, you have some brand new reporting about the potentially missing text messages from some Secret Service agents. What have investigators? I think it's the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General, right? What what have these investigators found?
10: Well actually this is these are investigators for the Secret Service. Oh, because remember, right? yeah, okay. this was so this was the House Select Committee had directed the Secret Service to basically do an investigation of itself. And what sources have told us is that of these this group of twenty-four secret service agents whose text messages were requested by the Inspector General last year, ten of those people had metadata on their devices that showed the text messages were exchanged between January 5th and 6th, 2021. But the content of those text messages was lost due to a data migration that started about three weeks after January 6th. But prior to this uh, request from the IG, investigators, again, at the Secret Service found that 10 of those people had no text messages at all. Three only had personal text messages. One had saved a text exchange that was uh, the chief of the Uniform division for Secret Service, Thomas Sullivan, texting Stephen Sun, basically asking him, what do you need? Uh, so that was the sole text message exchange that was saved, Jake.
2: So what is the Secret Service doing to find out if these 10 phones have relevant messages to this investigation as to what happened on January 6th?
10: Well, this has been a rapidly uh, a rapidly developing story, a rapidly developing internal investigation. They had been doing a very rigorous probe, according to a letter sent from the Secret Service to the House Select Committee, uh, telling them all of the ways that they were trying to abide by the House Select Committee subpoena. On July 19th, the Secret Service told investigators they had planned to conduct forensic examinations of available devices that were used by the identified individuals, additional follow-up interviews with uh, the identified users to determine if messages were stored in locations that were not already searched by the Secret Service, but Jake... The reality here is all of those efforts have to stop because, as CNN first reported yesterday, the DHS inspector general has told the Secret Service, this is now a criminal probe. Stop investigating yourself, Jake.
2: So there's a member of the January 6th committee, Zoe Lofgren, Democrat of California. She says that Tony Ornato, Robert Engel, and the driver of Trump's presidential SUV on January 6th have all retained private counsel. Just to remind people, Tony, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, Tony Ornato told her a story in front of Mr. Engel, that Trump lunged for the wheel and lunged for him because uh, he wanted the SUV to go to the Capitol. Um, the fact that they have uh, private counsel, as opposed to just using the Secret Service Council, does that mean that they are more or less likely to cooperate?
10: Well... I guess we'll know the answer to that when this is all said and done. But the, the reality here is that when you look at whether or not this is abnormal, I mean, you're right. The Secret Service does have attorneys, but it is not at all atypical when you have a situation that is this high profile, this high pressure for people who are who have to go in front of a, you know a congressional investigative body to retain a private counsel. I mean, we saw lawyers getting lawyers. Pat Cipollone a lawyer, and he had a lawyer. And so, uh, right now, whether or not they're going, this how this is going to impact their cooperation, we, we simply won't know the answer to that until this is all over. However, the Secret Service today saying that they have directed these employees to cooperate, James yeah.
2: Republican Congressman Kinzinger told our Jim Sciutto earlier today that he does not think Ornato, Engel, and the executive driver are cooperating.
10: Right, right. And to which the Secret Service says, you know, the Secret Service director, James Murray, issued a statement today saying that he has directed personnel to cooperate.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Whitney Wild. Joining us now to discuss, former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers and former Trump White House lawyer Jim Schultz. Jim, if you were the lawyer for Tony Ornato, just to remind our viewers, he was the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. He had been Secret Service, then he became in that political position, then he went back to Secret Service. If you were Ornato or Robert Engel, the Secret Service agent, or the driver, what would you be telling them right now? Would you be telling them to cooperate?
3: Yeah, I mean, first thing you'd want to know is what they know, right? And of course, you want to cooperate with the investigation. Most likely, they are witnesses and and, and have information and and that's and that's where the that's the limited capacity in which they'll be asked to testify as witnesses in most in most in this instance. So yeah, I, I would be recommending that they that they cooperate. I would want to know what they know and then convey that to the committee or whoever's at the, the in this case the the uh, the office of inspector general um, and convey that information the best way possible.
2: So Jennifer, mm-hmm. we don't know right now who these men have hired as attorneys or if they are tapping into these legal funds that have been made available by Donald Trump and his political committees. Campaign filings show that those Trump political committees have paid more than $2 million this year to law firms representing witnesses before the committee. Is this common for somebody under investigation to be paying for witnesses' lawyers? And is it ethical?
21: So it's not uncommon uh, for someone else to pay for your lawyer. Let's say you work for a company and you need to be represented. The company sometimes will pay. uh, And there's nothing certainly illegal about it. Uh, There's also nothing unethical about it from the lawyer's perspective, unless the lawyer is not representing the client. Like, in other words, if the lawyer really is acting in the interests of the person paying the bills instead of the person he or she is representing, that's unethical. But otherwise not. So the question really becomes is the lawyer representing the client's best interests? And that's something, frankly, that the committee and certainly DOJ to the extent this ever gets there needs to be asking about and thinking about and suggesting to the witness, if you don't think your lawyer has your personal best interests in mind here, you might think about getting another lawyer. That's a warning that prosecutors and presumably uh, the congressional the Committee will will make to witnesses in a circumstance like this.
2: And Jim, one of the reasons I ask is because at the end of one of the committee's hearings last month, the one featuring Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, the vice chair of the committee, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, revealed that some witnesses were were allegedly receiving messages from people in Trump's world that she suggested was witness tampering, perhaps. Here's one of her examples. Take a listen.
5: What they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player... They know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts.
2: I mean, to me, that su- Trump does read transcripts. That suggests that Donald Trump is getting transcripts of witness interviews. And the question, I guess, is, is he getting them with the permission of the witnesses or the lawyers being paid by Trump and his his legal organizations? Are they just giving the transcripts to others and they end up with Trump? If it was the latter, and I have no evidence that it is, but if it were the latter, because it's delivered in this threatening statement, would that be legal? Look, witness intimidation is never legal. And
3: to the extent that folks are being threatened or phone calls are being made. Uh, you, you, you have to be very careful. Whoever's doing that has to be very careful about making such statements because they'll wind up before the Justice Department. This con- Congress has already referred over uh, instances where uh, I think in one instance where the president, the former president had reached out to a potential witness and referred that over to DOJ to look at. They're taking it very seriously. But if you have competent, you have good counsel, and that counsel's representing you, and that counsel has the obligation to you as the, as the client, right? So if, that count, if you have good counsel, they have to be acting in the interest of the client and not the interest of someone else involved in the investigation, regardless of who's paying the bill. So I agree with Jennifer's analysis on this, but at the same time, you know, the thuggery and phone calls and threats are something that has to be taken very seriously.
2: What about sharing a transcript, uh, your your testimony transcript to to other people without permission? Is that is that legal?
3: Well, that would be something that the lawyer would have to consult with his client or his or her client on and obtain permission. So, again, you're talking about ethics as it relates to the lawyer that's representing the client, Um, not whether it's illegal or legal or not legal. You're talking about whether you have the ethical obligations that that lawyer has to that particular client.
2: Jennifer, this just in, the January 6th committee uh, issued a statement in reaction to a jury today finding Steve Bannon guilty of contempt of Congress by not uh, abiding by its subpoenas. Um, Congressman Thompson and Congresswoman Cheney said this is a victory for the rule of law and an affirmation of the committee's work. Uh, how big of a win is this for the committee? Do you think that this conviction?
21: Well, it's a big win for them, and it's a long time coming. I'm sure they think, you know, the wheels of justice move slowly sometimes. It's been a long time since they've been trying to get information from Steve Bannon. And, of course, lots of other witnesses, too. We have Navarro's trial coming up, and they referred a couple other folks over to DOJ for refusing to testify that DOJ decided not to pursue. So they've been pushing this all along. You cannot thwart our subpoenas. You cannot ignore us. And now they finally have their vindication. Steve Bannon is going to jail. It won't be for very long, but he's going to prison, and it's because he defied this subpoena. And I think they want that message to resonate loudly with everyone the committee is dealing with.
2: Jim, do you agree? Do you think Steve Bannon's going to go to jail?
3: Look, his sentencing's coming up in October. I think he's likely to serve some prison time. I know that he's, uh, he said that they've said that he's going to appeal. Um, we'll wait and see how that process plays out in terms of the appeal. But I do think that he's going to he, he's been convicted. There's prison time that comes along with this. He's likely to serve prison time as a result of it. And the committee should feel vindicated, you know, as a result of this this verdict today. And, and, and the legislative branch generally, you know, going forward as they look at, you know, other investigations going forward, they want folks taking their subpoenas seriously. And that's the message that was conveyed today.
2: Thanks to both of you for being here. Really appreciate your time. Coming up, just as a parallel investigation into Donald Trump's action in Georgia picks up steam, a judge is going after the prosecutor in that case for a potential conflict of interest. Plus, baking in the Big Apple, frying in Philly, intense heat now blasting the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. How long will these scorching temperatures last? Stay with us. in our earth Matters series the city that never sleeps is now the city that overheats new yorkers facing the most consecutive days above 90 degrees in years dc philly boston all are going to approach 100 degrees on sunday the west is baking too vegas temperatures were 90 or above all night for the first time in nearly 20 years cnn's Polo sandoval's in new york city uh, Polo, how are new yorkers braving this blistering weather
9: as best as they can, Jake, especially as they face the possibility of facing the longest lasting heat wave in over a decade uh, if that forecast turns out to be true. When you look at these numbers uh, coming from the National Weather Service, it seems that there is at least no end in sight or at least not going to be over anytime soon with the temperature expected. to into the upper 90s, potentially even 100 degrees here in New York City on Sunday. It is why officials here in New York City went ahead and scaled back the New York City triathlon that is scheduled to go down on Sunday. They have uh, scaled back the distance for the running and the biking portion. Uh, not far from here, actually in Boston. Officials there are deciding to just uh, postpone it altogether and holding that event in August when they hope things will cool down. But really what we're hearing from New York City officials here is really the warning that we're hearing from people across the country, which is continuously a hydrated out of the sun if possible, and to check on those most vulnerable as they are the ones that certainly uh, uh, stand the biggest risk. All in all, about 85% of Americans expected to see temperatures that will surpass 90 degrees. New York City and several other uh, regions like Philadelphia, you mentioned, Boston, all uh, going to be really in a sort of a state of, of emergency with health uh, heat-related or heat-related. Uh, uh, alerts that are in place into the weekend,
2: Jake. All right, Polo Sandoval in New York. Thank you so much. It's not just New York, of course, experiencing a record-long heat wave. I want to bring in CNN meteorologist Allison Schuchardt. Allison, what's going on for the rest of the country?
4: Well, over 80 million people in the lower 48 are under some type of alert, and again, it's pretty widespread. You've got warnings that stretch from California all the way over to Massachusetts. So again, you're talking a lot of people that are impacted here. Now for some of these areas, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Little Rock, you're getting those triple digits back again with very little break. But even places like Dallas, Houston, a lot of these cities have been dealing with this prolonged triple digit temperatures for a very long period of time. And for some of them, it feels like it's been never ending. And the thing is, when we talk about that climate shift in temperatures, That is kind of what we can expect in the future, where these heat waves are lasting longer. They're becoming more frequent. But also the flip side to that is the extreme temperatures themselves are reaching even higher levels you're talking more and more records being broken and we're also going to experience that this weekend 35 locations have the potential to break record temperatures either saturday or sunday for this upcoming week again when you talk about the overall expanse of this it's the combination of the prolonged period but also the temperatures themselves Look at some of these heat index numbers from the Northeast, 100 to 105 degrees. The forecast for Boston, Jake, on Sunday, 98 degrees. If we hit that, it will break a nearly 90-year record that is in place.
2: All right, CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchar, thank you so much. And these heat waves happening globally right now are just a symptom of a larger problem, of course, the climate crisis. My next guest ran against Joe Biden and made the issue his top priority. What does he say now about President Biden's approach? That's next. And we're back with our money lead this afternoon. President Biden met with his economic team for a briefing on gas prices. Drivers are seeing some relief as prices continue to fall. The average today is $4.41 a gallon. Compare that to a week ago. It was $4.58. A little over a month ago, prices hit an all-time high, $5.02 a gallon. Joining me now to discuss is Democratic Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State. Governor, Drivers in Washington state are paying $5.17 per gallon on average right now, much more than the national average for gas. That price, of course, includes a 49 cent per gallon gas tax, one of the highest in the nation Washington state has. President Biden encouraged states to suspend those taxes. You won't do it. Why not?
12: Well, I'm joining a lot of folks, including the Republican Party that doesn't think this is the best solution to this because essentially when you do a gas tax holiday, the money doesn't go to consumers, the vast majority of it goes to oil and gas companies. They just soak it up, they, they reap that, they've already got windfall profits. They would just use this differential and add it to their profit margin. The bulk of it would not go to consumers. And it's not a, a solution to this problem. We know this is caused by Putin's war in the Ukraine and increased demand those are the the real reasons for this we are happy that uh, things are coming down and I, and I, th- I think there's good reason to believe actually that that's going to continue so my constituents are not thinking this is a solution to the problem and they're turning to to, to longer term problems they've got of not being able to breathe because of forest fire smoke and and dying because of heat stroke that's what's really on their minds
2: well let's turn to that because obviously that's related to the climate crisis you focused your entire 2020 presidential campaign around the climate crisis. If you were president right now with this house and this Senate, so 50-50 Senate, what would you be doing to address the climate crisis that President Biden is not doing?
12: Well, I think he's doing what he should be doing in the sense that he did everything he could to get this through the Senate, but he ran into 51 uh, bricks, 50 of which are Republican Party. Don't forget that. And now he's turning to the, the, the number of tools that he has today through executive action where he doesn't have to drag the Senate with him. And he's got now five buckets that I believe he is looking at. Uh, one to really use his clean air, his clean air law and his uh, at least eight uh, regulatory measures, which I don't even believe this Supreme Court could stop, in reining in ozone and particulates which can increase health of Washingtonians, but simultaneously reduce uh, climate change gases. Uh, he can, um, you know, when you're when you're in a hole, stop digging. He can reduce infrastructure that we know won't be useful decades from now. And offshore wind and leasing on public lands, public don't want does not want leasing on offshore waters right now with all the attendant dangers in that regard. Third, he can really help free us in the states and in the federal government to increase the transition to electric vehicles and get better mileage. And with a stroke of the pen, very quickly, he can allow California and my state and many others to move to zero emission vehicles in the upcoming uh, years. That's very, very important. Fourth, he can can pass a rule that requires uh, financing industries to really uh, show through transparency what risks they are exposed to because of climate change. And 50 can have new efficiency standards. Look, the easiest way not to pollute is to not use wasted energy. So new energy standards for our efficiencies or appliances and some of our buildings, like we're doing in Washington state, almost all of this we're doing in my state, we've demonstrated mm-hmm. this can help grow your economy. So right. all of those things, I believe, is under consideration. I hope we will do all of them.
2: So um, I remember uh, last year uh, when the infrastructure in Seattle, in your state, and in Portland, just south of you, uh, melted uh, because you are not used to these heats, uh, as you uh, put it. You don't have the the climate infrastructure for temperatures this high. We're we're seeing that happening in in Europe right now, where air conditioning is not really a thing. Um, Are you having to adjust
12: Oh, you bet. I mean, a 100-degree day in New York and Washington, D.C. is not half as bad as a 100-degree day in in Seattle and Portland. And the reason is in the Northeast, people, you know, by and large have air conditioning. We do not have that. We have not believed it was necessary in the vast majority of our homes. So you bet we're going to have to adjust, but it's darn uncomfortable. We lost over 100 people just to heat last summer. Uh, the summer before, we could literally, our kids can go out to play because of the forest fire smoke. We have the worst air conditions in the entire uh, planet. So, yes, we are going to have to start accommodating this. Now, fortunately, we can use heat pumps to do that because heat pumps that do not use fossil fuels, they don't use dirty gas. They used to call it natural gas. It's actually dirty gas. It's very dangerous from a pollutant standpoint in your house. So now we have heat pumps that can heat and cool, and we need to start building them into our infrastructure. We also have to do cooling centers, obviously, as an emergency relief when people are in trouble to, to, to have places to go in their community that are cool. So this is gonna be a vast rebuilding program in some sense. and But we have gotta stop it at the source. Look, it's not a solution just to buy air conditioners. The planet's on fire. Uh, we're not gonna have water to drink in the Southwest. We're not gonna have forests Mm -hmm. In the whole West, because they're going to burn down. An air conditioner is not a solution. We have to kill this at the source. We have to stop this toxic material from entering our atmosphere from pollution from fossil fuels.
2: All right, Democratic Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State, thank you so much. Good to see you again, sir. You bet. Thank you. Coming up next in the showdown in the West, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, both in Arizona, both facing off for the future of the Republican Party. Stay with us. So having our politics lead now, a Republican face-off in Arizona could foreshadow the 2024 presidential primary race. The state's upcoming Republican primary for governor has quickly morphed into something of a bitter proxy war between former President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence, as CNN's Kyung La reports.
22: A showdown in the desert over the future of the Republican Party. Mike Pence and Donald Trump at odds yet again, this time in the hotly contested GOP primary for Arizona governor. The former president has endorsed Republican candidate Carrie Lake.
12: She is my complete and total endorsement.
22: A former Republican. I registered as a Republican. Turned independent. I was really fed up. Turned Democrat. I registered as a Democrat. Turned Republican again. The Republican Party party of solutions her campaign is centered on the lie that donald trump beat joe biden we may not be able to save the whole u.s as long as that illegitimate president's in the white house she spouts far-right conspiracies we had major election fraud hundreds 200,000 minimum ballots were trafficked by mules i'm carrie lake like Like trump lake made her name on television former Arizona local news anchor has also borrowed from his playbook, frequently attacking those in her old profession. Fake news here, by the way. I got ambushed by CNN
7: outside. I think Carrie Lake has what it takes to get us to where we need to get back on track for our families and gives us hope.
22: Lake has a message for a base and only that group. The question is, is that group large enough to win the Republican nomination? How are you? Republican gubernatorial candidate Karen Taylor Robeson, another leading contender for the GOP nomination, says it's not. How do you run against an
4: opponent who is backed by a popular former president? If you like Donald Trump's policies and record of, of limited government, low tax, pro-business environment, and somebody with a track record of success, I'm your candidate. If you want somebody who is uh, a big personality, then Carrie Lake is your candidate.
22: Robeson's strategy to win the GOP nomination is to consolidate support of traditional conservatives, helped by Biden, Pence's Karen Friday rally.
17: Arizona needs Karen Taylor Robson. Robeson
22: also has the support of Arizona's outgoing Republican Governor Doug Ducey who attacked Lake's support for Trump as a matter of political convenience.
17: Kerry Lake's
15: misleading voters with no evidence. She's been tagged by her opponents with the
22: nickname, Fake Lake, which seems to be sticking. Thank you. A delicate dance for Robeson. Courting the right wing means sowing doubts about the 2020
4: election. Where are you on the 2020 election? At a minimum, the election was not fair. And I know people wanna hear a different answer from me. But when you take a look at,
9: you know, there, there was concern from a lot of voters. When you look at the primaries we just went through and some of these other states, I think messages to take away from that are certainly the Donald Trump endorsement is a powerful asset, but it's not the silver bullet.
22: Arizona's primary will be another signal for national Republicans.
3: Kyung-La, CNN, Phoenix.
2: All right, thanks to kyung Law for that report. Let's discuss. Scott Jennings, uh, let's start with you. I want to, what do you make of this uh, proxy war uh, in Arizona. We're seeing it there. We saw it uh, earlier in Georgia um, with, again, Trump backing the person that was all in on full election lies versus uh, the incumbent governor who Pence supported. Yeah, dynamics here are a little bit different in Georgia. Pence had the upper hand supporting Brian Kemp, who was
13: far ahead. In this case, Trump's endorsed candidate Lake, according to some of the polls, is slightly ahead, although I think it's an extremely close race. Pence is aligned here with the outgoing Republican governor, Doug Ducey, who's an extremely conservative guy, but he also, you know, came under Trump's uh, negative gaze uh, for not doing what he wanted him to do on uh, election stuff. I mean, I I think as much as this is a is a a race in the moment, it is a little bit of a of a proxy for the argument to come from Mike Pence, which is, you know, we're going to have to get back to a Republican Party that is focused on the future and not relitigating over and over endlessly the 2020 election. And if you listen to his speech today. He was really not focused on Donald Trump at all, but really focused on conservative issues and, and uh taking, you know, traditional conservative shots at, at Robeson's opponent lake. So I, I think this is his this is a bit of a setup for his argument to come in his race for president in 2024.
2: And Casey, uh, take a listen to Katie Hobbs this morning uh, on CNN. Uh, She's the uh, Arizona secretary of state. She's the uh, Democrat uh, running for, she hasn't won the nomination yet, but likely will be the, the Democratic nominee for governor. She says that there really actually isn't that much of a difference between the two Republican candidates, even though one's deeply all in on the lies and the other one is, you know, playing footsie with them. Take a listen.
11: There's very little difference between either of these candidates on their policy positions. Um, Even Karen Taylor Robeson said in an interview last week that she couldn't name a single policy difference. She, too, has called into question the 2020 election and has refused to say if she would accept both the results of the 2022 election or certify the 2024 election if she um, is governor.
7: Is
2: she right?
18: Well, Jake, I mean, let's be honest about why she's saying that. It's because she knows she'll probably have to run against either one of them. And it's in her interest. It's going to be harder for her to run against Robeson if she wins the nomination. So she's trying to make them look equally extreme. I do think that there is a substantive difference, even though, yes, playing footsie with the election lies obviously is problematic. There are clearly Republican candidates who are trying to put Trump in the past they're trying to say, okay, voters, we get your concerns, but, like, we've got to move forward, right? Mm. I mean, that's Mike Pence's entire argument, as opposed to candidates like Carrie Lake who are really hung up on what Trump's hung up about, which is the 2020 election. So, I, you know, I do think there's a material difference, and I think uh, Ms. Hobbs knows that it's going to be a lot easier for her to run against Carrie Lake than against Robson.
13: And as a Democrat, I think Hobbs should be forced to answer the question about why the Democrat— if she's so upset about election denialism and mm. the fate of our democracy, why are the Democrat uh, committees spending money— to get Lake the nomination out there. I mean, they're for Lake. Trump's for lakes. I, I mean, I, to me, this well, is massive hypocrisy. Well, well, no,
19: because they think that she's easier she, to beat. Is that okay? Who is playing with fire? I, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, the dog's going to catch the it's car. Not, in these it's not. It's not immoral. <laughs> I mean, it might. It might be a bad strategy, but there's nothing immoral about it. I, I think that's what Claire
2: McCaskill did with Todd Aiken. <laughs> yeah, you know, she I Helped him face he was yeah, an easier candidate to beat, but yes, it is playing with fire. Yeah, But what do you? What about? What about you? Do you think there's a substantive difference? on these conspiracy theory election lie stuff. I think
19: there's a substantive difference between being all in on the, on the idea that the election was stolen and basically being all in on MAGA, which is which is what we have with Carrie Lake. I mean, it's not just this. She's just all in on whatever Trump's doing and however Trump approaches things, right? So I, I think there is a difference. I still think it's highly problematic that you, even the, the candidates that are supposed to be the sane ones feel compelled to pretend That the election might have been like something might have gone wrong. I mean, this is insane.
2: And you saw this in Georgia, where even people like Brian Kemp uh, and Brad Raffensperger, who held the line and were stalwart about the integrity of the election, then came forward and supported all these changes to election law that were really not necessary to make, given the fact that they endorsed how substantive and clear and fair. And forthright their election was.
23: Right. There was really no justification for all the changes in election laws that Republicans pushed through in Georgia, other than to try to appease that base we've been talking about. And so even with Kemp and Raffensperger, they stood up to Trump. They said the election was not stolen. Joe Biden won. But then in some ways, they still caved to the base. In some ways, they still adhered to the principles of the election lies, even if they had even if they said the election lies weren't true, they still adhered to those principles. And we're seeing that in so many states because, as Casey said, these Republican candidates don't think they can win the primary without doing they that.
18: Can't. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, this is what Donald Trump has unleashed, right? I mean, he the difference between him and all of the Republican nominees of the past was that instead of acknowledging that there was an element of the party that wanted this kind of thing. I mean, look at John McCain and Sarah Palin. I mean, I think they would look back and say that was a mistake, but he would at least stand up and push back against the element of the party. Trump unleashed it, enabled it, talked to the farthest fringes, to the, frankly, you know, white supremacists, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. And now that's given all of them permission and it's put Republican candidates. I mean, this is the challenge for everyone that claims that they want to restore the Republican Party after Trump is that it is very hard when, you know, 30 percent of the party is this way, to actually win
19: a primary in a different kind of way. Yeah, the only thing I would say is that Donald Trump had a turnkey operation. Basically, this was set up by Republicans, by all these good Republicans who have been talking about election fraud for as long as I have been involved in politics, who have been claiming that Democrats have been stealing elections for as long as I have been Following politics. So Tr- Donald Trump walked into a slipstream where it was all set up and everybody was already primed to believe that this is what Democrats do. I mean, we could go through all the different phony you know, the, well, you know controversies embedded, that happen.
18: Right, that goes all the way back to the South race, and race Jim stuff. Crow. But
19: even, I mean, I'm talking even in more recent times, ACORN, I mean, mm-hmm. the obsession over ACORN, those kinds of things. So there's always been this idea that Democrats steal elections. And so Donald Trump stepped into that. Yes, he's responsible for this, but we shouldn't pretend that the Republican Party, writ large, hasn't been telling the story for a really long time.
2: Tia, I just want to give you an opportunity to weigh in because a judge in Georgia has admonished the Atlanta area district attorney who's investigating uh, Trump's attempts to overturn and, uh, and steal George's uh, electoral votes. Uh, the prosecutor uh, Fannie Willis is how you pronounce mm-hmm. Willis is under fire for hosting a fundraiser for a Democrat who's running against one of the targets of her investigation, a state senator who is a one of the fake electors. The judge, however, is not removing her from the case. So tell us more about this.
23: Yeah. So Fannie Willis is an elected official, and so back during the primary, she chose sides in the Democratic primary and and held a fundraiser for the guy who is now. The lieutenant governor candidate and his Republican opponent is a stop the steal Republican, a state senator who is now the target of that special grand jury investigation. So the judge did say, you know, I'm not saying that it's against the rules, but it sure looks bad. Um, I think Fannie Willis might say if I know now where I'd be with this investigation Maybe I shouldn't have done that fundraiser then. But it doesn't look like the judge is going to remove her from the case as Mr. Jones, the candidate, would like.
2: All right. Great job, everyone. Uh, Have a great weekend. Uh, Thanks so much. From banning books to outlawing abortion, pulling back the curtain on who is really in charge in Texas. CNN's following the money. That's next. And our politics lead, the group MAGA, In this case, Mothers Against Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, just released a a new ad, and it's going viral. Listen.
21: They say nothing changes in
7: Texas
18: politics until it does. Until white Texas politicians removed our
7: history from the classroom. Until they
10: made
4: it legal to buy a gun without a permit and openly carry it. Till
19: Texas politicians put a $10,000 bounty on anyone who helped a woman get an abortion.
4: Till we
22: were called child abusers for loving and supporting our transgender children.
2: While this rash of new legislation is targeting abortion rights and transgender rights and book bans and increasing access to guns in Texas may seem broad, they are all connected. CNN's at lavendera followed the money in his new CNN series, Deep in the Pockets of Texas. Ed, tell us what you found.
24: Well, Jake, you know, we've reported for years and many people have talked about how Texas is on the verge of turning blue, that Democrats will finally win a statewide election here. But the fact is that hasn't happened. And there are millions of reasons for why that happens. And so we explore that. Your voting record is just as conservative as... Many of the people who might be supported by these West Texas billionaires, and you voted for the abortion bill, Mm -hmm. you voted for the no permit gun carry bill, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the bill that limits the discussion of race and gender in classrooms, you voted for that as as well. Mm -hmm. So why haven't the Tim Duns and the Ferris Wilkes supported you? It seems like you're doing stuff that they would agree with.
17: My voting
12: record is very conservative. Is it 100% conservative? No. They're 100%ers and you're either owned or you're not owned.
24: So the way you describe this is, it almost sounds like, you know, uh, Senator Joe Smith, to make up a name, if they've got a ton of money that's coming from these West Texas billionaires,
12: those billionaires are really
24: the the elected official.
12: It is a Russian-style oligarchy, pure and simple. Really, really wealthy people who are willing to spend a lot of money
17: to get policy made the way they want it, and they get it.
24: And so, Jake, you know, we're talking about Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes. These are not household names in Texas. You can almost kind of think of them as like the Koch brothers uh, here in Texas. They operate very quietly behind the scenes, and they have been effective for
2: years. Well, Calling them the Texas Koch brothers sounds better than calling them Texas's version of Russian oligarchs. What, What makes them so effective?
24: Well, you know, what they started doing years ago is instead of uh, putting money into, like, for example, and they have governor's races that cost tens of millions of dollars, but they've really focused on smaller state House and state Senate races across the state where a much smaller amount of money can make a much greater impact. And that's what they've done As one. A person who has been a longtime observer of Texas politics told us, you know, even when they lose and their candidates lose an election, they still win because they push everything to the right.
2: All right, Alejandira, thank you so much, appreciate it. Don't miss Ed's special report. It's this Sunday night, deep in the pockets of Texas. It's at 8 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. Coming up, he was a young cop, mistakenly beaten by fellow police officers. Now he's in charge of his force. Now he wants to change things. Stay with us. In our nationally, a homecoming story for the new Boston police commissioner. After two years running the police department in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Michael Cox is headed back home to Boston. And as CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports for us, Cox himself was once the victim of police brutality in Boston. Now he says he's determined to improve relationships between officers and the
20: community.
25: You've had a lot of roles in BPD. How does commissioner sound?
20: It sounds different. There's no <laughs> doubt about that, but I am excited.
25: Boston's new police commissioner, Michael Cox, has a past that brings a unique perspective on policing today.
20: I also, you know, had a pretty bad experience in the police department early on, understanding that, you know. The worst in policing, if it's not you know, addressed, if it's not checked, if the culture is not monitored, bad things can happen. In
25: 1995, Cox was an undercover officer. While responding to a call one night, he was beaten by fellow officers who mistook him for a suspect. They left Cox bloodied and bruised after discovering his identity. He was out of the job for six months before returning to the department where he'd stay for 30 years. Why did you stay?
20: You know, and, and it wasn't an easy decision at the time, but, you know, one, I had served the public and I loved the job. And I know all the good people that do this job. And, and yeah, there's some knuckleheads and people like that that are out there sometimes in these places, but the reality is back then I was saying, that's not what policing is. And if I leave, you know, how am I helping it get better?
25: Cox never fully told his story publicly until two years ago. <laughs> Motivated by the protests following George Floyd's killing,
20: I just felt it like, what is happening? You know, what is happening with the world around policing? Like, this is a profession that's needed everywhere. We can do it better, absolutely. But the people that do this job are doing it for the right reasons. By telling my story and you know, try to explain to people there are people in law enforcement that care. And I'm one of them. I do consider this a homecoming.
25: Now, the native Bostonian is poised to lead one of the largest police forces in the country. What do you say on day one to your rank and file?
20: They need to know that they're supported. But it's not just morale of the officers. It's also morale of the public, expectations of the public, public trust. You know, we need to build that up again. And sometimes that means, you know, taking criticism, revisiting some of our history just to acknowledge it and then move on and say, you know what, we're here.
19: We now have a commissioner who understands deeply what it means when our systems don't see everyone.
25: A lesson Cox didn't expect to learn while serving his city, but now carries with him as he leads. Bringing Grass, CNN, Boston.
2: And our thanks to Bryn for that report. Cox starts his role August 15th. A big show coming up Sunday. The Republican vice chair of the January 6th committee is going to join me, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Also on the show, Republican Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. That's Sunday morning at 9 Eastern here on CNN. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. Until then, I'll see you Sunday morning.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.